Um, one, more, one more announcement. If anybody knows a good optometrist uh, to refer to Kendall, please do that. Uh, it's, it's okay. Kendall, as we get old, you know, it happens. So uh, a, uh, a very happy, also not only All Saints Day, but a happy birthday to Margot Ludwig and to Ron Lingenfelder and to Justin Jones. And uh, please convey uh, our happy birthday to your sister Erica as well. I uh, don't know what was going on nine months ago, but... Uh, so uh, this, this, is, um, this is really is my favorite season. I know some people uh, don't like fall because that means that it's not warm anymore. Um, and uh, some people hate the leaves. And I hate the leaves, but I still love fall. Um, one of the reasons I like fall so much, and it's tough when you're doing the low-carb thing, is, is apples. When I was growing up, my mom worked with a lady who had a small apple orchard, and we would just get bags and bags and bags of these apples, and they were Macintosh apples, and I got so sick of Macintosh apples, um, and I still love apples. And uh, I, I think... Um, that is one of the great joys of, of the fall is, you know, if you're, if you're used to go, like going out to bog, because we get ba- apples like half bushel at a time. And, uh, you know, you go out to boggers and you're, you're toward the, the end of the summer, you're kind of picking through whatever they have left uh, in, the, in the storage. Uh, but then come fall, suddenly there's all these different varieties and, it's, and, and they're all fresh and they're all delicious and you get cider and it's wonderful. Uh, and this is, this is a harvest season. You know, we, we have our, our celebrations of uh, coming up at Thanksgiving. Of course, Canadians, because it's already frozen by our Thanksgiving, have to have their Canadian Thanksgiving earlier. Um, the, the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, probably originated as a, as a harvest festival. That was not long ago for our Jewish friends. And, uh, and at, at this time of harvest is when you, when you gather in the fruit of all the labor that you have been putting in all year, so all the work you did to plant in the spring and to weed and to nurture and to water, all of that finally bears fruit in the fall when you actually harvest the grain, when you actually take the fruit off the trees. This is also the time when you take a hard look at your flocks and you decide which ones are going to be worth the expense of sustaining over a cold winter and which one need to be turned into lamb chops. This is the time when you are blessed with tremendous abundance, when you go from eating the last of the apples and the other fruits that are in, in storage from last year, and you get the good, fresh, new stuff, as, as uh, Jen mentioned, because we live in a society where, where we're not all of us personally attuned to the agricultural cycle. Uh, it's good to, to remember that it, not long ago... Uh, this was, this was the time when suddenly people who had been hungry were, were now no longer hungry. And there's a lot to be grateful for. Certainly, in, in, a, in a pre-industrial society, this time of threshing was one of, of great joy, but also potentially great mischief. So if you have wheat, if you want to take it from wheat growing out of the ground to wheat that you can mill to make flour, there are a few steps. First, you have to cut it. You have to bind it into sheaves so it can dry. You have to take it 
and you have to thresh it. And the threshing process means you basically have to separate these grains, these kernels of wheat, from everything else in the, the plant that you don't want. You don't want the, the long uh, s- straw that's going to become straw for the bedding for animals, but you, don't, you can't eat that. You can't eat the chaff either, the, the stuff that's with the wheat. I mean, later on, way, 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 way later when people want to be all virtuous and organic, they'll want to eat that stuff. But most people, you're trying to get rid of it. So you have these things called threshing floors where you go on someplace that's fairly high where you can get some wind and you're tossing that grain up in the air so that the wind will blow away the chaff. You're winnowing the grain so you only have the good stuff left. And of course, because this is a very valuable agricultural commodity and because this threshing process is not something that you're going to knock off in 45 minutes, you have to worry about security. So usually the people working the harvest would stay on the threshing floor overnight. Because you've got to protect the grain from bandits, but also because at the end of a long, hard day threshing grain, a big pile of grain is a really comfortable place to take a nap. Especially if you have been enjoying some of the other fruits of the season. And those uh, of you who studied Ruth recently, I understand the ladies did, will remember that Boaz was in much that sort of situation one evening when Ruth came and uncovered his feet, if you know what I mean. So it's not an alien picture here in the first verse of Hosea chapter 9 when the prophet says, do not rejoice, O Israel, do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a whore at every threshing floor. Yes, if you have a bunch of men who have been in their cups and are feeling quite relaxed, that is the time when you will find prostitutes showing up, plying their wares. And as we have seen in this book of Hosea, What is God likening his people to? A prostitute. He is saying, you, my people, who are supposed to be dedicated utterly unto me, are selling yourselves out to false gods. And you're doing that, in this case, in exchange for these good fruits of creation. You remember back in in chapter 2, right? He says, she'll chase after her lovers but not find them. She'll look for them but not find them. Then she'll say, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. But she never knew. She never acknowledged. She never recognized that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. These good gifts that God gave his people, they were recognizing as the gifts of these false gods, the fertility gods of the nations around them. And they were giving the worship that was due the one true God who provided for them. They were giving that worship to others, to false gods. We don't know if it was an apple there in the garden. Maybe it was a pomegranate. Maybe it was a pear. Maybe it was simply figurative, but we do know the story from Genesis chapter 3 when 
God had made it clear to Adam and Eve that they were not to eat from just, just that one tree. Every other tree you can eat from, but not the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent being more crafty than any of those wild animals that Yahweh God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, in fact, he did not say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. He said you may not eat from that one tree. But the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat fruit from any tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So we have one misrepresentation and one bit of confusion. Now, we don't know if Eve said, God said you may not even touch it because that's what Adam told her. We don't know if that's because she was just putting an extra hedge around the law to make sure that she would not get close to eating it. We don't know if she misremembered it or if somehow she had thought of God as even more restrictive than he was being. Not a big restriction. You have all these wonderful trees in the garden. It's just this one. God says that I don't want you eating out of. Well, the serpent says, you're not going to die. I, God is lying to you. You're not going to die. Truth is, God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then, and this is... This is a verse that is good to spend some time meditating on. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. See, very few things tempt us because they are unattractive. And very few things tempt us because they seem useless. And very few things tempt us because we don't think we can put them to some noble purpose. Now, when we are tempted by things that we should not take, that we should not use, we should not enjoy, we should not look at, usually we can find one or more of these qualities. Usually we can find that they're useful somehow, that they're good for food. Usually there's something appealing, there's something bright and shiny about them that pleases the eye, and quite often we can convince ourselves that something we know we shouldn't have can be used for some good, noble purpose, like gaining wisdom. And this is the story of the human response to temptation, to do as God has told us not to do. We hear a voice that says, Isn't God unreasonable in saying you can't have any of that fruit in the whole garden? We know that's not right, but it it does put that question in our minds, doesn't it? It does make us wonder, maybe maybe God isn't. Maybe God doesn't really want my best. Maybe he isn't really generous and, and lavish. Maybe he isn't extravagant in the blessings that he pours out. Maybe he's maybe he's holding back. Maybe he's a jerk. Maybe God's up there in a Steelers jersey just saying, no, you can't have it. And then we get confused about just what he has and hasn't said we can do. And then when something comes along that seems appealing to us, we say, well, that, 
That could be useful. Certainly it's pretty. Why, I bet if I, if I did that, that, that could make the world a better place. So like if you take an easy and also so eloquent is the simplicity of the scriptures. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So Adam's there seeing this whole thing. And at any point he could have said, no, hang on a second. Actually, no, God said you, you can eat whatever you want. You just can't eat from that. And he didn't say you can't touch it. He just said you can't eat it. Although, you know, not touching it might help you to not eat it. But look at all he's given us. Look at how awesome this place is. We have the run of the place, and there's only one thing that we are not supposed to do. So why don't we do all the things we can do? But no, he just sat there passively until he got handed a piece of fruit, and he ate it. The result of this, as we see later on in the chapter, is God says to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The, the simple matter of making a living, the simple matter of getting the things you need out of the ground so that you can survive, is something that became difficult, became painful. Every time you have to pull dandelions in your yard, that's a result of the fall. That's a result of human sin. Taking something that once was to be easy in a sense. I mean, you know, there still was work to do in the garden. The, the apples didn't, you know, gather themselves off the trees into, into barrels. And, and, and uh, you know, the mint probably would have taken over the rest of everything else if it wasn't kept in place. But, but that work was going to be joyful. It wasn't supposed to be back-breaking. And here what's being described, God tells Adam, basically, you're, you're going to scratch out a living until you can't live anymore. And then you go back to that dirt that you came from. Which is why when God says to his people in Deuteronomy, when he's bringing them into this land, it's such good news, right? I mean, their deal is they had been in slavery for 400 years. The best of what they had was taken from them. They were only given just enough to survive. They were a means of production to Pharaoh. And God says, look, it's because Yahweh loved you. This is Deuteronomy 7, that he, and he kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God. He is faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He won't be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. So take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Now, if you pay attention to these laws, and if you're careful to follow them, 
then Yahweh your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He'll love you. He'll bless you. He'll increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land that he swore to your forefathers he was going to give you. You'll be blessed way more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. Yahweh will keep you free from every disease. He won't inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he'll inflict them on all who hate you. This picture is one of peace and prosperity and health. God says, I'm bringing you into a good land. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a great place to be. I'm taking you out of slavery. I'm not just taking you out of slavery. I'm putting you in some place where you're going to enjoy blessings beyond what anybody else around you is. And the whole point of that is so that people will come by and say, well, what's it these people have that we don't have? How come they have health and prosperity and justice? How come they're safe? How come they have peace? Who's their God? So that's the whole background of what Hosea has to say here in chapters 9 and 10, that he's speaking to a people who would have understood the material blessings of prosperity as something that that would have or should have been a gift from God. These are people who should have thought of them as God's gracious gift in the land that he brought them into. So if they're understanding these blessings as not the gracious gifts of Yahweh, the one true God, but if they're looking at these blessings as the gifts of Baal, the gifts of these Canaanite fertility gods they're sacrificing to, if, if they're equating the blessings they experience with the sacrifices that they're offering on the high places, maybe even with cultic ritual practices of, of immorality, then A, A, they're missing the point, they've got it wrong, but B, they're in fact crediting a false god with the good things that the true god has given them. They're giving their worship to a false god, not to the true god who redeemed them. They are committing idolatry, and God says, that feels to me like adultery. So when Hosea says, threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people, the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They won't pour out wine offerings to Yahweh, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It won't come into the temple of Yahweh. He's talking about what's going to happen to a people who have missed the point of the prosperity God has given. What are you going to do, he says, on the day of your appointed feast? What are you going to do? You've been given these appointed feasts, and God has commanded you on some of these feast days. I mean, read this stuff in Scripture. He basically says, take a tenth of everything you have and throw a huge party. Whatever you want, get it. If there's anything left over, you give it to the priests. But whatever you want, take a tenth of what you have. Now, this is, again, you know, this is the whole idea of a feast day as you do this sort of thing occasionally. If you do this on a regular basis, you're going to get yourself in trouble. But but God, it's not like God was holding back from his people. He commanded them, take a tenth of what you have and throw a massive party. Well, what are you going to do if you don't have anything? 
What are you going to do on the day of your appointed feast, on those festival days for Yahweh, even if they escape from destruction, even if somehow they escape this calamity that's coming on them, this, this defeat that is coming on the people, even if they manage to escape, where are you going to escape to? Are you going to escape to Egypt, where you were slaves, where you'll be slaves again? Memphis will bury them. It's a city in Egypt, not the place that Elvis is from. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars. Thorns will overrun their tents. Where where do these briars and thorns come? Where does that image come from? Where do we remember that from? That's Genesis, right? That's the curse. Thorns and thistles are going to grow out of the ground. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility so great The prophet's considered a fool, the inspired man, a maniac. Because when Hosea is saying this, he's saying this at a time when things seem pretty good, but Hosea said, look, the time is coming, and it's not long where you're not going to have this kind of prosperity. You're going to realize what happens when you betray God. And yeah, it's tough. It's hard out here for a prophet, because the prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God, where, where the prophet should be most honored. He is getting rejected. He's getting hassled because all the people have suck, sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. The, just, you think of those horrible events at the end of the book of Judges. Hosea says it's like that. God's going to remember their wickedness. He's going to punish them for their sins. You know, when I found Israel, God says, it was like finding grapes in the desert. Do you find a lot of grapes in the desert? Okay, right. So this is, you know, he's like, wow, look what I found. When I saw your father's, it was like seeing early fruit on the fig tree. Oh, this is great. But then when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol. And they became as vile as the thing they loved. Now, I'm sure you remember well that story of Baal Peor, but just in case you didn't. This is in Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and Yahweh's anger burned against them. Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that Yahweh's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. And then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses. How brazen is this? Right in front of the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they're weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So while they're all weeping and lamenting their sin, he is just brazenly going at it again right in front of them. And when Pinchas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and he followed the Israelite into the tent. And then was made the first shish kebab. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body, and then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. Those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Yahweh said to Moses, You know, Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, 
He's turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them. I didn't have to do this because he did. So tell him I'm making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. When God mentions one of these episodes, he's reminding his people that he does not mess around. That when his people commit idolatry, when they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol, they became as vile as that thing that they loved. The principle there, you may have heard it, is that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. Whatever you set your eyes on, whatever you set your mind on, whatever you choose to adore, that's something you're going to become like. So if you set your eyes and your mind on something that is vile, God says, it's what you're going to be. So as a result of this, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And even if they have children, I'll bereave them of every one. Woe to them when I turn away from them. See, I've seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. So give them, O Yahweh. Well, what, what will you give them? I'll give them wombs that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They'll be wanderers among the nations. See, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. What's the idea? Israel should bring forth fruit for God, but here Israel bring for, brings forth fruit just for himself. And as his fruit increased, what did he do with it? Did he give it to God? Did he use it to take care of those who were in need? No. As his fruit increased, he built more altars, more shrines of worship to false gods. As his land prospered, what did he do with it? He adorned his sacred stones. Their heart's deceitful. And now they're going to have to bear their guilt because Yahweh will demolish their altars and he'll destroy their sacred stones. And then they'll say, they'll say, yeah, now we have been, we've lost our nationhood. We have no king because we didn't revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what, what could he do for us? They make all these promises, they take false oaths, they make agreements, and so lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The, the people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. My people, God says, are going to be mourning the loss of an idol, and my priests, who should have been directing the people to worship me, are going to be mourning the loss of this idol that they led the people to worship. Those who rejoiced over its splendor because it's taken from them into exile. It's going to be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed 
of its wooden idols. Samaria and its king will, will float away like a twig on the surface of the waters. It could be that they'll just fade away like foam on the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. And thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. And what will they say then? They will beg the mountains, cover us. The hills fall upon us. But since the days of Gibeah, you've sinned, O Israel, and, and there you have remained. You have made your bed, God says, and now you're lying in it. I mean, didn't war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? So when I please, I'll punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim, Ephraim's a trained heifer that loves to thresh, coming full circle on this whole threshing floor picture. So I'll put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. Plowing is much harder work than threshing. Well, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground because it's time to seek Yahweh until he comes and showers righteousness on you. But the problem is you haven't sowed righteousness. You've planted wickedness. You've reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. And because you've depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children, thus will it happen to you, O Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. Well, that's cheerful. Yeah, I don't want to give, up, give too much away. This is not the end of the story. But we can't move on to the good part of the story without recognizing why this bad part is here and just how bad it is. And it's hard to do this because, unfortunately, this teaching about prosperity is one that can get confused. You know, we've heard of the people who will tell you that if you love God, then you will be prosperous and you will be healthy. So, if you have a painful and embarrassing injury, it must be because you did something wrong, right? Because obviously, if you were doing right, then you'd be fine, right? If your house gets foreclosed on, then obviously it must be because you were unfaithful. Because if God really loved you, then he would be hooking you up with a mansion. Usually this kind of teaching is associated with the kind of teaching that says, you need to send money to me as a demonstration that you're faithful to God, and then God's going to demonstrate his love for you by blessing you materially. And the reason people can get away with saying that is there is so much in Scripture that says, yes, God is usually going to bless his people abundantly, and one way that God will show his love for his people is by blessing them abundantly. There also are places where God says, I am going to not bless you as a means of 
showing you that I am unhappy. There are also places where God says, I am going to put you through a difficult time of trial, even though I do love you. In fact, it's because I love you that I'm going to do that. And there are times when God says to his people, yes, I know you don't like that, but you're going to have to suck it up. What did Paul say? You know, I prayed three times to the Lord that he would take away this thorn in my flesh. Nobody knows what that was, whether that was a particular temptation uh, or or just some sort of a physical ailment or whether it was depression. But Paul says, I prayed that God would take this away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. So just because you are putting up with something doesn't mean that God's mad at you. And just because you're enjoying prosperity and blessing doesn't mean that God is necessarily happy with you. Jesus said, look, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. But yes, there are plenty of places where God says, I am going to give you this land and I'm going to bless you abundantly. And if you follow my law, you're going to experience prosperity and blessing and peace and health and happiness. And partly that's because my my laws are good. I mean, if you follow the the agricultural practices that I've laid out, your fields are going to be more productive, but partly, really more importantly, it's going to be because you're in right relationship with me and I'm going to bless you. Remember, of course, this was a, a covenant that God made with a particular people at a particular time in reference to a particular piece of real estate. We're in a different situation. But this blessing that God gives is something that we are to rejoice in. Timothy said in his, or Paul said in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he said, you know, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some are going to abandon the faith, some are going to follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. You're going to teach things, these hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They're going to teach things like you can't marry They're going to tell them you have to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Everything God created is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. The the good things God has given us are good. They are blessings. They're to be enjoyed and they're to be received. You shouldn't feel guilty when you bite into an apple and say, wow, this is really good. You listen to some people, you'd think that Jesus turned wine into water in the wedding at Cana. No. I mean, if, if you have a problem with alcohol, then you shouldn't drink wine. But if you don't and you like it, that's something God's given you to, to, to receive with gratitude. The many blessings God gives us are things to be received with gratitude. But they have to be received with gratitude to God. We can't be giving somebody else credit Whom else might we give credit for the things that we receive? To whom else might we attribute credit? Ourselves? Well, I worked for that. Sure, yeah, you worked for that. But do you give God the credit for it? Do you credit your education? Do you credit your luck? Do you credit the good upbringing you got? Do you credit your intelligence? Do you credit your own hard work, your own stick-to-itiveness? All these things are good and things to be grateful for, but ultimately, who gets the credit, right? No, they're all to be received with thanksgiving to God. When we start crediting anything else, 
for the blessings we received, we are practicing idolatry. And God says that is adultery. That's how you make me feel when you credit anything other than me for the good things that you receive. It's like you are giving your love and affection to somebody you're not married to rather than me that you are. And sadly, even in the celebration of communion, which we're going to do shortly, the church has not been without fault. I mean, we've seen, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the, the, um, the way that religion can be abused. Paul talks in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians about what was going on in Corinth, and he says, <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, imagine you're in a church and you think you're doing pretty well, and you get this letter from Paul. He says, you know, the truth is, your church meetings do more harm than good. Really? Yeah. Like, you would do better if you didn't go to church. That's how bad your church services are. Because I hear that when you get together as a church, you have these divisions among you. And, you know, to some extent, I believe it. Because no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And when you come together, when you think you're coming together to take the Eucharist, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Because as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. I mean, don't you have your own houses you can eat or drink in? Why do you have to come to mine? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What, what, seriously, what do you want me to say? You, you want me to give you an attaboy for this? No. Hell no. The situation was in Corinth, you had the wealthy people who were showing up early for the church service. They, like, they came to brunch at nine and they got all the bacon, right? And then the people who worked for them the people who were, were too busy cleaning up after them, when the time they finally got there, all that was left was turkey bacon, which is an abomination. All the real bacon's gone. Now all you have left is turkey bacon. And then the people who were there early said, hey, isn't that great? We just had this great brunch. No, it's not great at all. You're feeding people turkey bacon. Yeah, you're, you, you get together for the Eucharist, and, and all the wealthy people show up early and they pop open a nice bottle of Chateau Petrus and then you, you got like the dregs of Mad Dog left for the people who get there later on. Paul says that's not okay. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. This is supposed to be something that you share in together and you have taken this, this opportunity to worship the Lord Jesus and to remember his glorious sacrifice on our behalf and you've made that an opportunity to extend economic oppression and to, to further indulge your own appetites that you're doing plenty of already. And you want me to give you a gold star for this, Paul says? Come on. No. We receive God's good gifts, but we receive them as God's good gifts. And if we are really doing that, if we are recognizing that they come from God and that they are things that he gives us, 
then the more we do that, the more we do use them well. The more we realize that they're not things that are just to be used to gratify our own desires, our own appetites that are to be used to make ourselves feel good, that are to be used to make us feel like we're superior to others. We receive them as God's good gifts. So think about that next time you bite into an apple. I mean that. Think about that. Who gave you that apple? Well, the farmer gave me. No. Yes, but God gave you that apple. When you receive the blessings of a good meal or a nice glass of something, when you pop open a Diet Coke to wake yourself up in the morning, who gave that to you? All glory.